Hey, cuz, welcome to the next episode of How Good It Is, and today is another special holiday-themed episode as I chat with another Baltimore-based musician who's perhaps best known for his holiday song. How good it is. Hi, I'm Claude Call. Brandon Walker's music has been reviewed in places as diverse as G4's Attack of the Show and the Jerusalem Times. Some of his songs have appeared on shows like HBO's Eastbound and Down and The Fosters, which ran for a few years on ABC Family, what we know these days as Freeform. His song Foggy Window, which you can hear in the background now, was named Song of the Month by Songwriter Universe magazine. He's got an evocative style with his lyrics and a genial manner when you're speaking with him in person. In 2004, Brandon was given a class assignment to write a Christmas song. Well, not being Christian, he decided to write what he knows, and he composed a fun song about the Jewish experience when it comes to Christmas. That song was called Chinese Food on Christmas, and a while later he shot a video of himself performing the song and uploaded it to YouTube. After that became a video hit, He shot it again with a full band and using a few different Baltimore area landmarks. It's a truly fun video, and I'll link to it on the website. Brandon and I met a couple of weeks ago in a meeting room in a public library near his current home in the Annapolis, Maryland area. He brought along some peppermint tea, which he shared with me. It was absolutely delightful. We sat for nearly an hour and sipped tea and talked about his music. Now, there was a minor technical issue with this recording, which I hope I've managed to uh, fix enough that your ear will just kind of get used to it. The bottom line is that Brandon was a little further away from his microphone than I thought he was, so there are times when he sounds a little bit distant, but I did the best I could, and I hope you don't find it too distracting. So here is me and Brandon Walker and some peppermint tea. I grew up on Long Island, and it was a pretty big Jewish population in that town. So I was pretty well acquainted with, you know, Borscht Belt humor. And one of the big jokes there went along the lines of, well, it must be a Jewish holiday because the Chinese restaurants are closed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and so I, and, and, and I, I've seen stories about, like, the guy who— um, who shot your video, like his wife didn't, or not his wife, his partner didn't get the jokes and that that were in the video because they were just like, you know, oh, the, because, Charlie. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. And, and, you know, he didn't understand the humor, but he understood it, so it all worked yep. out okay. And I, I just, I found that kind of amusing. I was like, yeah, I constantly get those jokes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I wonder which uh, interviews you're referring to. I wonder if I've seen them over the years or not. But yeah, Justin's from our area. He, he is, He's Jewish, pretty sure, Justin. Yeah, that, according to the, the article yeah. I read, yeah. He's Jewish. He, you know, grew up among all of us Jews. And then Charlie went to Towson. And um, where's Charlie even from? New York, maybe? I don't remember. He's, I think he's up in New York now. Uh, both of them have, uh, from what I understand, really good careers in filmmaking now. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. Um, Charlie has done some work uh, for multiple, like, well-known, well-regarded uh, networks. I think. I think he's done, like, some... Some National Geographic stuff. Um, he's definitely done stuff, some commercials with like well-known celebrities, and uh, and then Justin got a gig with Under Armour, mm-hmm. and he did that for a while. They both seem to be doing very well. Well, good for them. Yeah. You know, I, it's it's kind of funny because like in doing the research for this interview, and, and there's frankly not a lot out there. Nearly every article I read online, okay, has pretty much the same two details. One is that this was like a class assignment, all right? And the other is the chorus. The chorus appears in like every article about the song. Yeah, it's very printable. (laughs) (laughs) And and so I, I... this is your opportunity to really get just a little bit more of the story out there that, that, you know, it's like... There was one where it was like, well, you were challenged, and another where it was a class assignment. So what, what's the true story there behind what, 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 what got this song launched? Yeah, you're asking me to dig back to 2004 now. So I, for all I know, I'm going to be embellishing. But no, <laughs> I, uh, this will be a good exercise in trying to revisit um, what happened, what are we talking, 18 years ago at this point? So um, 
I was in Songwriting 101 at James Madison University. Uh, we would have different songwriting challenges uh, or assignments. And I use those words interchangeably because uh, he would essentially challenge us to write a song in a certain style or with certain criteria. Uh -huh, okay. uh, some of them would be he would give us the chord progression and then we'd have to write the lyric and the top line, the melody to it. Um, other assignments would be um, very open-ended, but then it came time for Christmas and he said, write a Christmas song. And, and the, the background to that is, if you get one Christmas hit, you're set for life. And uh, I'm sure at the time he gave us examples like Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You. Uh, I, I've read articles that uh, Paul McCartney uh, makes, like, I, I don't remember the numbers, I'm sure it's in the millions for um, his... What Christmas song? For Wonderful Christmas Time. Yeah. Which, in my head, and a lot of people find that kind of a weak song, at least at least from the McCartney canon. Sure. Because it's, he's got those synths, and it's just like so mired in its decade. I mean, it's a good song otherwise. Yeah, and it's still Paul McCartney. Yeah. And, and I think people are able to spend more time with it because they don't really know what's going on in that song and what it's about. Because mm -hmm. uh, it jumps from a, a verse into a chorus that doesn't, always go seamlessly so it's i think people like to speculate what is he actually writing about what, what was going on before they're simply having a, a wonderful christmas time I've, I've heard jokes about you know people were practicing witchcraft people were doing something <laughs> that they didn't want other people to see and then they pretend oh but we're just and somebody like, walks in the room yeah, and yeah, like <laughs> that out there. but yeah i think that's part of the longevity i mean other than being written by the greatest songwriter there may ever have been mm -hmm. Well, that, that that's interesting. Now, do you do you find yourself when you write songs do you, that, that you model your your work after anybody, or, or 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 let me let me back up a little bit. Do you find yourself writing something and say, "Well, that sounds like to Paul McCartney. I need to change it," or some other artist? Uh, sometimes I get inspired by songs and I start writing based on that. But I think when it comes down to it, I I write from. Uh, an isolated place of what feels like authenticity, not trying to be derivative, but I think we're all bound to be derivative at some point because we are the the sum of all the songs we've listened to and all the the bands we've seen and artists who influence us. Uh, I can't say I ever really tried to sound like anything, and I think it would be a fun experiment to try to sound almost exactly like something, or at least write based on something, and then perform it and see if Maybe it sounds like me afterward. I think that would be an interesting songwriting exercise because uh, it would almost feel like cheating in the moment of writing, but then uh, so much of, of music and how it resonates with people is uh, how it sounds from the artist. So um, I can't say I, I use any, um, any songs or any artists as my inspiration when I write, but mm -hmm. that would be a fun experiment to do that. So let, let's come back to uh, Chinese food on Christmas. Yes. So, okay. Uh, so the professor <laughs> says that um, it is uh, if you get a Christmas hit, then you're set. Uh, so your job is to write a Christmas song. Uh, so we all went home and, and worked on that. And I went by the the old advice that you should write what you know. I knew everyone was going to write a Christmas song, and I had the unique experience of being I'm pretty sure the only Jew in the class. So I wrote about my experience at Christmas time, which as pretty much any Jew knows, is uh, you eat Chinese food and you go to the movie theater. And that's not an exclusively Jewish experience. Uh, a lot of people go to the movie theater on Christmas. A lot of people eat Chinese food on Christmas. Uh, but I decided to capture it in a song. Uh, it almost felt like cheating because it, it, the, the experience was already there. I felt like everyone already knew about the experience. The chorus is ridiculously simple. I eat Chinese food on Christmas. Go to the movie theater too. Because there ain't much else to do on Christmas when you're a Jew, mm -hmm. uh, and so I, I used that, and um, and then I decided uh, I would build the verses out of um, either lyrics from existing songs or or common tropes or cliches from Christmas time. So, um, you know, Santa doesn't come down my chimney. Uh, relief presents under my tree. He's making his list and he's checking it twice, but nowhere on there was me. I just kind of used that as inspiration to get the the other lyrics out. Mm -hmm. So, so when, oh, so what was the initial reaction in the class? Did you did you guys have to play for each other? Yeah, yeah, okay, so we, we play it for the class. 
I remember my professor loving it. Uh, I don't remember many, many details from that time, but he had a really great reaction to it, which kind of, um, I'm someone who can be easily influenced by uh, my perceived, uh, the, the, the way I perceive the audience to react. So uh, positive reinforcement, very important. So if I get that, I, I feel more inspired to kind of run with it. So since I got such a good reaction out of it, I decided to, um, God, I guess it was after I graduated. The good thing about a Christmas song is that it's good year after year at that time of year. So I guess it was the following year, maybe, uh, when I just decided to record myself on a piano, uh, just me and a piano playing the song. Um, and that's when it was listed on the top 10 of YouTube, when that used to be a thing that YouTube did. Uh, and if you made it to the front page of YouTube, you were guaranteed a ton of hits. And I got like 500,000 views on that one. And so that was the positive reinforcement I needed to say, oh, people seem to like this. What if I did a full-on music video? Um, I got some inspiration from um, some of my bandmates at the time. I was in a, a kind of dance party band called Midnight Spaghetti and the Chocolate G-Strings right. out of James Madison <laughs> University. Uh, we had so much fun. Uh, but our, our front man, Seth, um, I'm pretty sure at some point in time he said, you should make a music video about it. Uh, and I told him I had been thinking about it, and I think that's all I needed to hear to, to go for it. So um, that... I don't want to go too far without making sure I answer your question, but I mean, the assignment was write a Christmas song, and um, it didn't go too far in that moment in school. It's when I went home and recorded it on the piano, I think the following year, that it took off a little more. Mm -hmm. And then, so when you when you did, made that decision to make a full video, because I know there are two versions out there. You got like that stripped down version, as you say, which is just you and the keyboard. Mm -hmm. and And I presume that's how you performed it for the class because you were a keyboard student, were you not at I was the time? Not, I mean, I was a history major. I took music classes oh, okay. every, every term. I played piano and keyboards. And um, in that class, I believe I just played a recording. I think part of Songwriting 101 was the power of the record and how it's recorded. And these weren't big productions, but it was about if you record this, how does it resonate with people? And that way we could kind of sit there and let the music, let the recording do the work. Not turn into like a coffee house experience kind right. of situation. Right. Exactly. Okay, that, that, that's reasonable. That, what were the decisions that went into shooting that video then? Because if you're at James Madison, well, you had already graduated. So, but at that point, you've got your bandmates who are from the school, okay, which meant that they weren't necessarily local to Baltimore, but you managed to bring them up here to this area to to do the video, as I understand it. That those are your the same bandmates, so actually, correct? Different bandmates. Oh, really? So, yeah, my my midnight spaghetti bandmates stayed in Virginia, and I would uh, go down and play shows with them from every every now and then. But um, my new bandmates were friends from high school, uh, who we just <laughs> reunited after graduating from college, and uh, we got together. Uh, we had a band called Barely Five Feet that played covers. Of, we were all on the on the shorter end of the <laughs> spectrum, so um, hence the name. And then, so I got those guys to play uh, guitar. Most that was my friend Brad Hecht, um, and then uh, my friend Jordan Resnick. He played bass, uh, and then the drums I programmed. And then I got my friend Graham Cochran from JMU to do the final touches, kind of mix it and master it. Mm -hmm. and uh, put out the recording. But I recorded everything at home um, and learned a lot about recording at that time because I, I wasn't great at it. Uh, I know like one thing is I wish the lead guitar was uh, more front and center, more present, whereas what I did was I, I put the mic, I think, on the wrong, on the other side of the room um, and the other side from the amp so that the recording sounds kind of distant. Um, of course, there's many things I would change about the recording from from back then, but... Well, it, it does kind of work. And then you have those two points where your guitarist does the little bit of the flourish. Early in the song, you've got that like kind of Middle Eastern yeah, that thing going on. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then later on, he's playing Hava Nagila. Yep, yep. And that, that, those, in those two points, it does very much come front and center. Yeah, I, I guess it's an engineer's ear. When, when my friend Graham was mixing it, he was like, how did you record this? Because an engineer wants to be able to work with as much of the primary source as possible. Sure. And when you're recording from across a room, you're working with the room as well. Not just the primary source of the amplifier, but whatever resonance is going on in the room. 
So maybe it's a thing that engineers are more attuned to, but I think you're right. It, it's done. That's how it's supposed to sound at this point because that's how I'm used to hearing it. So mm -hmm. it's fine. Now let's get into the video. It's it's a fun video. Let me let me let me just say that. Yeah. And and you know it, there were places I looked. I was like, oh, I recognize this. And then at some point in the video, like a sign would appear in the background that would confirm my suspicions. Yeah, yeah. So it was like you were up by Hunt Valley and yep. in, in that shopping center. Yeah. And then I saw you at the Senator Theater and I was like, that's a theater that most people from Baltimore would recognize instantly. Yeah. Um, and, and the only one I didn't pick out was the Chinese restaurant, which I found out later on was located in Owings Mills, which is just outside the city. So, yep, yep. Um, so, well, let me ask you that when, when you did Hunt Valley, yeah. okay, because that's all exteriors, all right, was that like guerrilla style shooting or did you get permission from somebody on that, that one? Guerrilla style. We woke up at, gosh, I don't know, 6 a.m. and just went straight to Hunt Valley um, before it opened. And that way we had all the Christmas decor. It looked like it was abandoned. And yeah, it was still there. desolate, yeah. But, yeah, but it, it worked. It was, uh, yeah. I, luckily, when you're, when you're young like that and you don't really know the rules, you just, you don't think about having to get permission to do that. You don't let things get in the way. Uh, so yeah, that was easy. We just showed up at Hunt Valley and we assumed no one would be there and we were right. Mm -hmm. uh, Senator Theater, I just thought it'd be cool if my name was on the marquee. Let's go ask. And I went and asked. They were like, sure. Well, that was the previous owner, right? When it was just one guy. Yeah. And so it's definitely easier when there's uh, one person who has the uh, unilateral ability to, you know, decide what's okay. And then it's also easier when it's a, a Baltimore icon that's kind of was, was tanking a little bit at the time. Mm -hmm. So I think anything to bring attention to it um, in a positive way was, was welcome. So um, it was so easy to film there. We just asked and they were so welcoming. Mm -hmm. and, and again, you were in an empty theater, at least what I could see there. Yeah, and, empty and theater to ourselves. Yeah. So was it you just like picked a time of day when there weren't any shows running? And he, I think... He, I don't remember how it went down exactly, but we just coordinated with the owner, and he let us know when would work. We we told him we wanted an empty theater, mm -hmm. uh, so he made it happen for us. Okay, and then what about the Chinese restaurant? Because that, you've got the owner of the restaurant in the video. Yeah, yeah, so that's Mary. Um, I don't know where she is now. I would like to know because that restaurant, uh, you know, it has since cloned, closed down. That was the only thing that really cost money. The budget for that video, it was like a $800 video. And it's because I, I treated everybody who came to the restaurant. And did it. <laughs> uh, so I rented the buffet for that night. And, uh, and then we filmed there. And um, again, I just went and I asked. And they said, sure, we're going to charge this per person. And um, it was a lot of money. But I figured if this is really the only cost of the video, then let's do it. Um, I was really lucky that Charlie and Justin were in the very early stages of their career and uh, were at Towson University, so the idea of doing something without pay was was fine. Uh, they they weren't necessarily in the stage of their careers where they were expecting pay, and anything to help them gain notoriety was uh, was welcome. Resume builders. For yeah, 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 exactly. So um, they said no at first, actually, and so I went to a different friend who just was like an amateur film person and she had I think like a digital 8 um, camera, it was not HD or anything so we were planning to do that and then Justin came back and said actually we will do it and I'm so glad they did because uh, the resources we were able to pull with them between the quality of the cameras, the lighting, uh, the know-how, I mean it was it was awesome to work with them. Yeah, and there was a lot of like just fun camera work too. It's like mm -hmm. one of those things I tend to pay attention to because I do have another podcast and it deals with films and, okay. um, and so you've got that one shot where the camera's just like running up the buffet and people are like just pulling the dishes out in time until yeah. you get to the last one and somebody's like loading up their plate. Right. Um, it freezes for like a two a few milliseconds too long in that last person. Yeah. <laughs> part of the artifacts and the the character of the video. Yeah. Um, but I, but I, I presume also that there were costumes involved because you did have a couple of people who were dressed in uh, like Hasidic outfits yep, yep. and 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 also um, there there was you would you would dress somebody up to as, as an older woman. It was your mom, was it not? Uh, yes, yes. Oh, so I forgot. My mom dressed as a bubby. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we we played uh, some dreidel at my house and made it into like a, a casino kind of back room kind of scene. 
And um, so we dressed my mom up. My cousin Burton dressed as a Hasidic on the drums. Uh, my friend Levron dressed as a Hasidic and played uh, fake trumpet. Um, who else? I think Jordan on bass played, uh, dressed as a Hasidic. I, I got a bunch of, <laughs> of like payas, and uh, if you know what payas are, it's the... Yeah, the little curls down the yeah, side of the face. Yeah. yeah, in the place of sideburns, basically. I got a bunch of hats with payas, um, and I think... Were there tallies? I think they were. Uh, but, you know, I just kind of doled them out and, and we just, uh, then I did, I think, a Facebook post to invite extras and friends and they all just showed up. I told them there would be free dinner <laughs> and, um, and then we filmed. And then um, very uh, serendipitously at the end, um, uh, we asked Mary if she would want to be in the video. She said yes. And um, that's one of my favorite scenes where the owner of the restaurant is just dancing in, in the circle and... Uh, everybody's dancing around her. Yeah, it's just terrific fun. But now, but I've also heard that that, and and I'll I will preface this as saying I, there was one part of the video that I kind of bumped onto, but but there are some in, in playing into some of these stereotypes. Okay, there there also had to have been like a little bit of controversy involved, you know, because you know you you can. You're going to have fun with, and I guess, you know, some of this is, is almost like, you know, I can make fun of myself, but you can't make fun of me kind of situation. But at the same time, you know, are you, are you mocking the stereotype? Or are you reinforcing the stereotype when you put something like that into, into the video? And, and so what, what discussions have, have you been a part of in that regard? Yeah, there were definitely comments. Um, I'm sure they're still there. In fact, I, I should probably go back and revisit them. Um, but I know what they say in, in essence. It's that um, I'm reinforcing stereotypes, particularly when we slam on the brakes and stop to pick a coin up off of the uh, the road. Um, and is it a quarter? I forgot. A penny? Um, you it's hard to tell. Yeah, it, it is a coin. It is not worth much. We know this much. Um, but uh, there's that stereotype. And then um, some, some people commented that uh, in the... Um, Lockies that Bubby made scene where we're playing dreidel and it looks like a kind of backroom mafia scene. It doesn't, uh, the optics aren't great there for the, um, me winning the pot of money and pulling Just all the money toward in, me. Yeah. And yeah. Raking it in. So, um, at the time I, I held strong to that. This was satirical and anyone who doesn't get that, um, shame on them, not on me. I think I've grown quite a bit since then because I've learned that um, there's a lot of people out there who are are in danger of forming opinions based on anything they're exposed to uh, because they're not going to take the time to assess the motive of, of the content creator in many cases. Um, so simply by having a popular video where a Jew stops and picks up a coin, um, and where a Jew is raking in the money, uh, it doesn't look very good. And uh, just that in itself reinforces a stereotype that um, I, especially today, do not want to be reinforcing. Um, so what could I have done differently? Um, I actually talked about this with a rabbi at the time because I was meeting with a rabbi because um, I, I enjoyed studying Torah and um, I'm a huge skeptic and cynic but I also am very intrigued by by Torah and, and Mishnah and uh, Jewish thought and wisdom um, so I was studying with a rabbi and uh, we were talking about what could I have done instead and he thought well what if you still slammed on the brakes and picked up the coin but then you dropped the coin in the tzedakah box which a tzedakah box is for charity Okay. Um, and I thought that was a great way to keep the what I thought was a funny scene, um, but also turn it into something with a more positive spin. Hindsight. All right. I, that's reasonable. And, and I think, you know, times change, attitudes change. You know, we, we hear all the time about like, well, this TV show from the seventies would never get on the air today because yeah. of the, because of the content. And there are words that you could say in the seventies on television, you know, even in a, comedic context that still wouldn't happen today and i don't know if we're necessarily richer or poorer for it you know i i think it was it was 
I don't know. It was kind of interesting that that we that we had that freedom to do that, and now we feel constrained. But at the same time, you know, it it strikes me as like you think about the movie code of you know the late 30s through you know the late 60s mm-hmm. and how there were things that you could not say that you could not show that you could not do and the writers got very clever about it and they managed to find ways around it to express exactly what they were going to say without actually using the word the image the th- and and so you know, maybe that's the thing is like we're, we're we can kind of force ourselves into a different version of creativity, get the point across exactly the way we wanted to, but find it in, in a way of doing it without basically turning people off. Does that make sense? Yeah. And if I could push my younger self to think a little deeper, uh, still get the laugh, but but do it in a, a more fulfilling, wholesome kind of way. I don't know about wholesome. You don't need to be wholesome, but get the laugh in a way that that makes more people happy and, and makes more people on your team versus uh, draws the ire of you know of some folks. Now, music is is is. I mean, it's it's something that you still that you've done since then. I mean, this what it's. I mean, this started out as kind of a you know a side fun project but but there are other things that you have done since then uh you've recorded you know music albums that kind of thing uh, i and in fact i have something here about like one of your songs became like the song of the month from from uh from one magazine mm-hmm. and, and so is this something that you still do as far as um you know a money-making operation or is like or is this still you know sort of the side thing for you it, it's a side thing that i want to be my main thing um it makes money, um, but uh, not not to the extent that it could make a living. Uh, when Chinese Food on Christmas came out, it was so popular that I remember it was, I think, like next to Britney Spears in terms of its popularity in YouTube videos, the, the music video version of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember jumping for joy in my dad's house where I was living because uh, I thought, this is it, this is... I, like, I've been wondering, what am I doing with my life? And I finally have the validation to make this happen. Everybody who had a popular YouTube video at some point got to be on a talk show or something. So I thought, this is going to be my launching pad. Let's wait for all the, the calls to come in. Uh, but the writer's strike happened at that point. Oh, yeah. And uh, there, were no, there were no talk shows. Uh, there were plenty of calls. I was in pretty much every Baltimore publication, newspaper, um, I got recognized by people when I went to visit my sister at F&M. And when I was just in downtown Baltimore, people would say, are you Brandon Walker? And it was the coolest thing. Like, I, I was like very mildly famous for a moment. And um, I, I thought it was an awesome launching pad. And so I tried to figure out what could I do with this. So I started writing a song a month to try to get my repertoire up because I just didn't have the repertoire at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's how it how it continued i mean it didn't uh my my graph definitely peaked at chinese food on christmas and then it had a pretty drastic um downfall and then i kind of would just keep writing and there'd be bumps here and there where i get you know acknowledged as song of the month for a songwriter magazine where uh where recording magazine published uh, one of my recordings and did a whole review of it where i got a song placed on Eastbound and Down on HBO. I got a song on uh, The Fosters on ABC. And um, uh, what else? Um, there were just, you know, all these, these moments uh, that were little doses of what I wanted the whole experience to be. Uh, and Chinese Food on Christmas was the giant peak of it all. Well, to come back to that briefly, I, it, it actually it appears on a Christmas compilation. Um, it's, it's called... Uh, Cool Christmas Two. It's the second. It's like oh, the, yeah. the sequel, and that's got to be cool just to find yourself next to you know Dred Zeppelin playing "All I Want for Christmas Is My Two Front Teeth." Oh, I mean, <laughs> you know, I I didn't even I probably knew about this at some point. I should check out this album. <laughs> yeah, um, it's 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 tough to find actually because I was looking at the playlist and I'll, I'll yeah. share this with you in a moment. Okay. And 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 so I did go looking for it and it's. Tough to find now. It must be out of print because if you want to buy it on Amazon, it's like forty bucks oh. for vinyl, 
and it's not available on CD at all through Amazon, but you can find it on eBay for $59. Oh but if, yeah, if you look at this track list and you can see there's just, there's just a lot of good stuff. There's like four more tracks on this second page that you don't have here. What? I'm on an album with Johnny Cash? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> this is funny. I must have signed something away at some point for this. Uh, I would have said yes to whatever came my way in the early days. Mm. Uh, oh, that's so funny. Pearl Jam, Sunday at Christmas. Very cool. Well, I don't know if I'm going to go pay $59 for this, but <laughs> I'm going to be on the lookout for it. Um, I also got, I was uh, put in a book, um, a book about, um, what was it? I think it was about, it was either about Jewish traditions or about specifically Chinese food. Maybe it was both. One was a, a journalist, I think from the New York Times, Jennifer Eight Lee. I think she did something with Chinese food. And then there was another uh, publisher uh, who wrote a book um, about, I think, the Jewish experience at Christmas. I have that book. Um, so, yeah, I got, you know, I got a little bit of notice here and there, a little bit of a mention here and there. Um, I kept writing and recording, and uh, I would put out songs. And um, I still get, I get monthly royalty checks for um, a couple different of my songs that are out there um, uh, for the TV shows they've been placed in. Uh, for the plays on Spotify, though those are worth like nothing. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's nice to to feel like to know that I am still a professional musician. Um, I'd love for it to be the main thing, but at the same time, it is a wonderful thing that I I include as part of my my experience in in life and something I'm passing on to my kids and something I plan to keep doing. Um, I, I'm hoping to come out with some some new recordings this year. I've been writing and it's time to put something out. So that's where I am. But I've, I've continued to play and write and record. And have you uh, played live lately? Or? Let's see. I went, I finally pulled myself out of the pandemic, um, just isolation, and went to a songwriter night in Annapolis the other night um, to see some other songwriters and start to get to know the people in the area. Um, they asked me if I wanted to play, and I just felt unprepared in that moment. So uh, next time I go there, I will be ready to play, and I hope to do that there. Um, otherwise, it's been since before the pandemic, it's, which is just crazy. Like, I, I very much miss playing live, playing with people, um, and so I, I hope to make that part of what I do next year. All right. Oh, you know what? Sorry. I, I mean, I did play a gig like a couple months ago. Like a, a friend um, got asked to, to play a show at um, Hizakamuna in Baltimore, and um, so we put together a two-hour set for that. That was great. I played with some great musicians who were friends from high school. Mm -hmm. um, that was just a few months ago. That's a neat venue, too. Uh, well, it was outside. They actually built a stage for it. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was, uh, there was tons of activities for kids. There were vendors. Um, there was, uh, let's see, there, were, there was a brewery there. And uh, it was a good time. It was um, got the professional treatment, had a sound guy and everything. So it felt good to be back at it. Oh, good, good, good. You, you said you, you, you're working on some material. So have you been in the studio recording or are you just still writing at this point? Yeah, I, I often write and then start recording. Um, I have a home studio and so it all happens at home. Um, the drums are the main thing that are going to be difficult to do. So I'm experimenting with drum machines, but also um, I might just hire a live drummer for, for that part of it. Um, I'm trying to just kind of write less censored these days. I feel like a lot of my writing, uh, I've censored myself over the years. In what respect? Uh, in that I would <clears throat> write a line and question, is this what people want to hear? And write another line and question, will this resonate with other people? And I think at this stage in life, I'm, I'm at least trying to just write uh, from a place of authenticity and not worry about what others think about it because i i'm curious to hear what i sound like when when that happens sure i mean that, and and that's reasonable i think that's something that you know we, we talked earlier about the beatles and and that, that john lennon went through you know where where he got kind of irritated with just people like analyzing the hell out of his lyrics but that turned into i am the walrus which was just entirely nonsense mm -hmm. but he did it specifically to confound the people who were studying the lyrics so hard. It's like, I'm just going to put anything in here. But 
my understanding is also that there were a lot of times when he would put in phrases just because of the way they sounded, that they didn't necessarily have to make sense with the rest of everything else. So just yep. like, oh, this just sounds good here. Yeah, and that's what I'm trying to remind myself of. I think good music is about how you make people feel. And I've, I think I've been too cerebral in the past where I write lyrics first and then try to put those lyrics to melody. But it's not, that's not what it's about. It's really about... Uh, in the words of a band I love called Carbon Leaf out of Richmond, mm -hmm. uh, it's about the way the words hit with the chords, and I'm probably butchering that, but it, uh, it's a lyric of one of their songs. Um, and if, if the right word hits with the right chord, it creates a feeling, and that's really what it's about. And if you're just going to write lyrics, it makes it difficult, I think, to, to have an impact on the listener the way if you just maybe have the music first and then feel out what what words fit, like like you're saying about John Lennon, just because if something sounds good, then it probably is good. And then do you, do you ever think about things along the line of, of that that combination of not just a chord and a lyric, but maybe if oh well we throw in some harmony here, or we double the guitars, or you know do something a little bit special and like. Maybe not at the writing stage, but at the recording stage. Oh, for sure. Yeah, and the production part of it, it's all about creating sounds that are unique. Uh, it's, and that's, that's the quest of so many producers is what can we do here? What sonic stamp can we put on this recording? Uh, and that's always the challenge. It's, uh, you know, what if we run this toy piano through this Leslie Tone cab and there's a rotor <laughs> going? And, you know, it's like everyone's trying to figure out something that's never been heard before. And, that's been the quest of musicians and, and producers and arrangers forever. I mean, uh, the saxophone is a fairly recent addition to the orchestra, uh, and it filled a void that people saw, and it created a new sound. And I think today with computers, we can create infinite new sounds, and it's very exciting. But that's that's the goal. Um, if you, uh, I'm thinking of Billie Eilish right now uh, and her brother Phineas, mm -hmm. who's a genius who has the wisdom of like a 400 year old in his and he's only like 20 who knows what 25 ish um he in one of her biggest hits um one of the sounds is just a crosswalk uh in australia that they heard that they were standing at and it just went tuka, 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 to indicate to the hearing impaired i'm uh, sorry the, the sight impaired i should say uh that it was time to cross so he recorded it and he put that in one of her biggest hits and uh, that's the kind of mentality I'm trying to take on as, as a producer is how can I get sounds that no one else is using. So what's been your most experimental kind of thing so far? Oh, probably nothing. I, <laughs> I, I, don't think, yeah. I, I know what I want to do, but I haven't, I haven't figured out uh, how to do it. And I think part of the reason is that comes at the end. So this is something that um, for my next recordings, once I have the foundation of it done, the drums, the bass, the keyboards and guitars, and the vocals, that's when I'd probably look to see what else I can, I can add to it. Um, and I've recorded some stuff along the way, like, um, what was it? I, I think I had, um, I had something in the trunk of the car. I, I have it on my voice notes on my phone. Uh, but I accidentally hit it and it resonated in a really cool, unique way, so I recorded that. And I figure I could drop some of those into um, my, my DAW, my, my recording uh, program, and see if I can utilize it as some kind of percussion. Mm -hmm. Since Chinese food on Christmas, you've, you've become a husband and a parent, mm -hmm. right? And so does, does that affect, well, A, your lyrical content, okay, and if so, how? And then also your recording process. I mean, you've kind of got to shoehorn these relationships now into whatever you're doing. So yeah. what's that effect been? That's the truth. Um, I, I never wanted to be someone who said, I just don't have time, man. I'm, I've got three kids. But, uh, and you know what? I, I don't really say that. Uh, but I find that having three kids, which is wonderful, uh, <laughs> makes it so by the end of the day, I just want to chill on the couch with my wife and and watch a show or something. Well, it's tough because now you're outnumbered. Yeah. <laughs> you and your wife, it's like three very, kids too. Yeah, <laughs> very much the truth. Uh, three is vastly different than two. It's, um, it's a major change. I think anything after three is probably fine. I, I think that's two to three is probably the biggest shift of 
of craziness. And I, I imagine that after three, it's just almost, you know, incremental to the point where it's not noticeable. <laughs> so um, anyway, all that's to say, um, I, I am definitely um, harder pressed to make the time, but it's definitely not about finding time. It is about making time. And um, I have been trying to take more time during the day, during the work hours, uh, and, and right. When I was teaching music, uh, I would go down into the boiler room of our school uh, when I wasn't teaching a class, and I would write for about 45 minutes. Uh, and that was a great, great way to get some writing done. Um, I currently work from home, and so it's easy to, to take some time and, and do a little writing or recording, and I'm going to try to be more purposeful with that in the coming year. Uh, but lyrically, I pretty much only write about my kids and being a dad. It's weird. I got, it's like, again, writing what you know, but um, anything else feels too forced. And so, like, my most recent song, um, it's called Maybe That's Enough, and it's... It's also a bit of a, I'm approaching 40 song, what am I doing, what, is, what defines me? Um, and so some of the lyrics of that are, um, it starts out saying, Sandman, come and do your thing, another day is complete, uh, I woke up for work and went through the daily routine. Uh, and so I often feel at the end of each day, it's like, what am I doing? Yeah, I had a fine, productive day at work, I spent great time with my kids, that's all wonderful. What am I doing for myself? What am I doing for my love of music? Um, and um, in the chorus, I say, I'm a father, I'm a brother, I'm a friend, I'm a son. Um, I um, do unto others as I wish to have done. Um, I write these songs and hope to spread a little joy and love. And when it's all said and done, maybe that's enough. So I think I'm, you know, writing about like, that time, like that, just what we're talking about now, like how am I using my time? Um, and maybe it's enough that, you know, I'm, I'm taking on many roles and wearing many hats and the, the music is just part of who I am and maybe that is enough. Uh, but of course, as a musician and an aspiring, uh, someone, an aspiring full-time musician, you know, I, I always have that thought, like, what if this could be my main job? Do mm -hmm. you mind sharing what your day job is? Yeah, yeah. I'm a, uh, I was a music teacher for most of my career, and in the past four years, I've switched to working in the education technology world. Uh, so I'm an admissions, count admissions counselor for um, uh, some programs um, that are associated with this company called 2U. Um, it basically takes graduate programs and brings them online, um, and, and a whole lot more. So I'm still in education, but um, I... Have a lot more free time now. Don't. Hopefully, my my superiors aren't listening to this. But, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's it's an eight hour day job that takes only a few hours to do. So um, I try to use that to my advantage and and take care of other things, whether it be things around the house, errands, grocery shops, uh, spending more time with the kids. Uh, the pandemic for us, uh, I know it was very challenging for a lot of people. Um, it was wonderful for us because of the time we got to spend with the kids and together and still got paid at work. Um, so uh, ed tech is, is what I do now. So tell, tell me, do you, do, you, do you have any pet causes that, that you'd like to bring awareness uh, to the rest of the world here? I mean, I think as an educator that education is, is the one the the thing that will solve it all it is the, the silver bullet kind yes, of yes <laughs> yes the golden whatever you want to call it uh i think um access to education is crucial so um what i've done in my career is as a music teacher i i tried to you know just be a positive influence on these students and um i've worked in some schools that are high need schools and um I just think that if if we solve education, we can solve poverty and healthcare and so many of the other issues. I think stem from from that. Um, so, what am I doing to help that? I mean, in my job, we certainly uh, make education more accessible um, to more people, higher education. Uh, but I don't think it's enough. Um, I've been trying to volunteer as a music teacher. Um, in the Annapolis area, but I can't find anyone to accept my 
my offer to volunteer. Huh. Uh, yeah, and then the pandemic hit, and it's been particularly challenging. But uh, yeah, I often think about what can I do to help the cause of education more, and um, being a mentor to someone, whether it be through music or otherwise, is something I'd like to do. Uh, like I said, the pandemic had, had derailed that a little bit. Well, is, then, then is there an education-based um, organization of some kind that you think people should give greater support to? Well, uh, any, you know, I don't have names. And putting music in the classrooms uh, or supporting music in the classrooms, any, any funds uh, related to that, uh, I'm certainly strongly behind. Um, but, you know, I wish I, I wish I came here with the name, and I, forgive me if you had asked me to do that and I didn't. Uh, uh, so that I have to think about. Um, yeah. Well, if I could, I actually, it just occurred to me if I could mention one. There's one uh, that operates out of Baltimore City. It's called Orc Kids. Okay. Okay, and basically what it is is the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra, they bring musicians into schools to teach the students to play classical instruments. Oh, awesome. So, you know, some of them, they're learning like violin and and and, uh, and flute and, you know, woodwind, you know, woodwinds in general, that kind of thing, um, to schools where maybe the only music program they might have is somebody who's going to teach the youngsters like, you know, music appreciation and the usual, you know, hot cross buns on the recorder kind of kind of stuff now they're actually playing you know classical pieces and as it happens like the school i work in is co-located with another school that does have the orc kids program and they run on a different time clock than we do like their bell schedule is a little bit later than ours so on my way out of the building i can hear the orc kids playing oh nice and it's kind of cool to go through the school year and hear them actually improving uh, you know, as yeah. as they play, because once in a while you'll hear them in the music rooms, and then every now and then they'll go outside and practice, and so you can actually hear them in the parking lot, like you know, playing the brass instruments, and it's a lot of fun just just listening to them, you know, improve over the course of a school year is just so much fun. Nice, that's that's wonderful to hear, and that's got to be so fulfilling for those kids, and uh, yeah, opportunities like that go a really long way. So, work kids. Okay. <laughs> All right, and, and so where can we find you on the web, social media, that kind of thing? Yeah, brandonwalkermusic.com is my website. Um, I'm reachable there. Um, I still get uh, email um, from, from random folks. Um, I sell my sheet music to Chinese food on Christmas on there, and um, I always get uh, purchases this time of year. And um, I'm on Facebook. Not really Instagram, though I am told I should be. Um, let's see the best way to be in touch with me is um, off of my website if you join the mailing list um, if there's news and updates I will write you and you will know about it whether it's a gig in the area or it's a new song or it's the announcement that I got another placement on TV whatever whatever it may be in the future hopefully there'll be some good news to share well good 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 and and I guess now, am I going to have to go back and actually sign up for the newsletter? I mean, you've got my email address now, so... <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I will manually input that one for you. I, there you go. I, I appreciate handle it. that one. <laughs> All right. Anything else you'd like to, to share with the world at large? Because uh, this, this podcast is heard literally around the world. I've got people in Australia who contact me about it, so... Oh, uh, fantastic. I'm a big Australia fan. I, uh, I studied abroad there for four months. Um, Let's see. I would like to say, because I think you told me this is focused on Baltimore somewhat. Um, this particular episode, yeah. Okay. Well, I, um, I am a huge fan of my hometown of Baltimore. I think there's so much talent there. Um, and I would just like to encourage everyone to go to the 8x10 Club. That is one of the best venues in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. Uh, go to Ram's Head Tavern in Annapolis. Absolutely. The best listening room in the entire area and in, in probably in the... The region, um, we've got so many great musicians and events happening. Uh, WTMD is the coolest radio station. Uh, they put on amazing events, not just uh, for not just for people who can go out and listen to live music regularly, but they do events for parents with kids on Saturday mornings. Um, so I just want to do a general plug for the city of Baltimore because I think there's so much wonderful creativity going on, and I'm so proud to be part of that Baltimore scene and I look forward to being part of its growth and seeing it flourish in the future. So uh, support Baltimore music, support Baltimore arts and 
um, you're going to love being part of it. All right. How are you feeling? Are you feeling good? Feeling good. All right. Terrific. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate your, your interest in me and my story, and uh, this is a lot of fun. Thank you. All right, how about that? Nice. By the way, the music you're bopping along to right now is... Uh, also, Brandon's, it's his dubstep beatbox remix of Carol of the Bells. Once again, you can check out Brandon's website, brandonwalkermusic.com, where you can find links to his music and any upcoming performances if you're a local. The uh, music group that we talked about at the end of the uh, episode is called Orc Kids, and it can be found at O-R-C-H-K-I-D-S, orckids.org. And that, my friend is a full lid on another edition of How Good It Is. If you're enjoying the show, well, you've made it this far. That's got to mean something. Please take the time to share it with someone. Leave it with your friends. Leave it with your enemies. Make them your friends. Maybe even leave a rating or better yet, a review somewhere. That's the way you can find us, right? And now you can support the show over at patreon.com slash how good it is. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can email me at howgoodpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can also follow the show on Twitter or Instagram at how good it is, or you can uh, visit, like, and follow the show's Facebook page at facebook.com slash ow, how good it is pod. Or you can show, check out the show's website, howgooditis.com, where you might find a few extra bits. Thank you so much for listening. Have yourselves a happy new year. I will talk to you next time.